Morning, church. Hear this scripture from Romans 13, 11 through 14. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Some of you might be saying to yourself, didn't we cover that passage last week? Uh, Yes, (laughs) yes we did. Um, But I think it struck many of us that we need to spend a little bit more time uh, in this passage. And hey, we've already been in Romans for like eight years, so what's, you know, another week or two. Um, But in in doing that, I'd like to continue to settle into something uh, together. We opened, like I said, to this passage last Sunday, um, and it was clear the Lord was getting our attention of something. I think in particular drawing our attention to what it means to heal, what it means to receive healing. Uh, from what Paul calls the works of darkness. Because I, I, don't, I don't know all of your church experiences, but having my own church experience growing up and perhaps speaking to many of you, a lot of times language like works of darkness are used as judgment and clarifying why you're such a sinner and why you need to change your ways. And yet, I think what the Apostle Paul and all of the scriptures do is really help us understand how we're trapped that we're culpable in the darkness, but we also have been victimized by it. And so there, there's healing that needs to take place in our psychology and our thinking and in our, our hearts and our affections. Um, and so we looked at six words in particular that Paul spoke about in this list that he gives us um, here in Romans chapter 13, and they represent really disordered relationships. Because in the darkness, blinded to the goodness and mercy and power and beauty of Jesus, we learn really bad habits. Uh, And all of us, I think, recognize this to varying degrees, that we learn some disordered ways uh, of living, in particular when we believe that the world is all that we can see, or or that the world we can see is all that there is. Sin begins to tell us stories and teach us ways of engaging the world that are really limited to the brokenness of this world. And so when Paul says, let us walk properly in verse 13 in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy, he's talking about these disordered relationships that we take, take on in that darkness. And what Paul is really telling us is that we need healing. And he doesn't just speak about it generally. But by the way, I'm real comfortable when we're general. When we get specific, that's where I start getting uncomfortable because it clarifies some things, doesn't it? that I can say, yes, I am a sinner. Oh, you want me to talk about alcohol and sex and my relationship with people? That feels feels like a little bit more invasive, doesn't it? But that's what Paul does. He clarifies the disorder of our relationships. See, it's about learning ultimately self-control in a number of different ways. That's what he teaches over and over again. How do we live with self-control as people of the light who still dwell in a land that is steeped with darkness? See, it's more, though, about our need, I think, for sexual renewal and transformation that I think is probably the most urgent thing that we bumped up against in uh, our consideration of this text last week. After all, Paul has opened up uh, this new section by appealing to his readers, saying this in the beginning in chapter 12, where a new section began. He says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
What if that statement is not a general and euphemistic way of speaking? What if he's really talking about your body? What if he is really talking about how we're meant to deal in the light with the way in which our body is meant to be offered up as a living sacrifice? See, our bodies, believe it or not, are made for worship. They're made for worship, not just as things that carry around your soul, but your body itself. See, the darkness, though, has done something really nefarious, and this is what we need to spend our time thinking about today. What the darkness has done is it's detached our bodies from our souls. It's detached our bodies from our souls in the ways that we have considered it, and that's what I'd like to talk about today. A disordered sexuality detaches body from soul, and an ordered sexuality brings harmony, a worshipful harmony back to the body and the soul Healing then begins by stepping into the light. That's what the Apostle John talks about in his letter to the scattered church in the first century, that fellowship with God and fellowship with one another happens in the light. Do you want to know why you feel distant from people often? It's because sin has trapped us in the darkness and we can't see ourselves, we can't see each other. That's one of the primary reasons why we often feel discord with one another is we're trapped in the darkness. We can't see, we can't see properly. And I think what we did last Sunday is we stepped into the light. What many of us did in our groups through this past week was learn to step into the light. We named sins and shame and disorder for the very first time. I remember sitting around in my living room with my group going, yes, I've had that experience. Yes, I can relate to that. And each of us sharing different ways that we not only have experienced sort of a sexual miseducation, if you will, in the church, but the way we ourselves have been culpable to that. And so I think then sitting in that is incredibly healing. It's stepping into the light. It's bringing things that were in the dark that we're not supposed to talk about, right? We're not supposed to talk about in healthy and loving and mature ways. But when you do that, there's this sort of healing that begins to take place. But the invitation in John is more nuanced than that. It's not just step into the light. What's he say? Walk in it. That's a little harder. That takes a little bit more time. That takes a lot more healing. See, John gives us a powerful picture of walking and healing, and it's directly connected, I think, with what Paul says here in Romans chapter 13. John says in chapter 1 of uh, 1 John, he says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It's good news for us as we walk in the light, especially carrying a lot of the burdens that we have identified from our previous consideration. And so in his motif, this light and darkness, I think what John gives us is a pathway. He gives us a pathway to sexual healing from sexual shame and harm and self-concepts and concepts of one another. And I'd like to try to map out that pathway a little bit today and even begin to walk in it together. And for some of us, that will be sort of more of a cognitive practice, just something that's more intellectually interesting. For others of us, it will be really challenging, uh, depending on how much you've clarified or maybe not clarified your own pain as it relates to your own sexuality or the idea of sex in general. And so I, I want to at least say from the outset, my desire, our desire even as a church family in walking through these things is not to shame, to hurt, to harm, but to heal. It's, it's not to throw sin in anybody's face. None of us is righteous, no, not one, not even when it comes to sexuality, not when it comes to our own self-concept. And so we walk this path together. So I think it's important that you hear me as one of your elders say this from the outset. No one has to walk a longer road in sexuality than someone else. We all have to walk it together. 
We're meant to walk it together. I think that's one of the things that the Scriptures points out. In fact, if you walk your own sexual like renewal out yourself, you're missing what God has called us to as a people, as brothers and sisters. And so we need to walk this together, and we ask for God's help in that. Along the way, this path, I think there's three signposts, if you will, that we need to follow. The first is fellowship, which John wrote about. Um, that's with God and others. That, that, I think, is the order. Fellowship is the order that God has created for our sexuality. But then John also says not practicing the truth. Darkness is not practicing the truth. That's the disorder. And then all of this requires us to walk in the light, and that's stepping in, not just stepping in, but actually walking in, learning to walk this long road of healing. That's how we'll organize our time. We'll look at embracing the order, we'll look at understanding the disorder, and then walking in healing. So uh, embracing the order, understanding the disorder, and then walking in healing. Uh, Romans 13 is our primary text, but we're going to take a long excursus into Genesis chapter 1 through 3 because I think that's where uh, the Lord will help us unpack a broader understanding of what Paul is talking about. So with that being said, let's pray. Father, goodness, help us. Help us to understand what it means to be your people, to be your kids, uh, to be brothers and sisters in this family. Um, uh, protect us from the thought that maybe we don't have a lot of ground to cover personally in this subject. Forgive us for thinking that we are the only one who has ground to cover in this. The evil one would love to divide this room right now and to say you are the ones who get it and you are the ones who don't. Father, together we say we are bankrupt without you. We are ignorant. We um, are without love and truth and affection without you. And so knit us together again as your people, as you knit us together in our mother's womb. Uh, and I pray, Father, that ultimately this pathway of healing, we would not think that it's a quick fix today, but this is really the beginning of a journey for us as a church family uh, to walk in healing, to walk in wholeness, and to walk in a way um, that ultimately demonstrates the love of Jesus in the light. And so help us in this, we pray. I pray for my brothers and sisters um, that as we navigate this together, that, Father, I thank you that you are a God who never brings uh, a wound into the light without the express purpose of healing it. And so as those things are clarified today, uh, give us faith and hope in that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the, the path of our healing, I believe in anything, but particularly as it relates to our, our sexuality, I think begins with this first signpost of embracing the order. Right, a lot of retelling of the gospel begins with bad news, and then it gives you good news. That's not how the good news is laid out in the scriptures. It goes good news, bad news, good news, right? So, so it, it comes with this beautiful picture of order and joy and healing and hope, and then there is devastation and brokenness. And if we're not telling the full story, we won't get it right. And so this is why we go to Genesis. See, when we look at the creation narrative, we see harmony not only within men and women, but between men and women. Can you imagine that? healing within men and women, and healing between men and women. Specifically, we see the wholeness of a humanity whose bodies are in harmony with their souls. So if you're not there yet, meet me in Genesis chapter 1. This is an easy one to find if you've got an old-school analog Bible. Genesis chapter 1, very first chapter of the Scriptures after the table of contents. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. This is a key primary passage in the Scriptures. For those of you who are new in the faith and in the Christian walk, this becomes sort of like a foundational text for how we understand ourselves and humanity in general. Um, then God said, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness, 
And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. Now, in general, Genesis 1 reads like a poem, and it carries on this sort of structure into chapter 2 and chapter 3. But it's a poem with an express purpose of attacking rival cosmologies. What's that mean? It's like the writer understands what people already think, believe, and say. Their mythologies and understanding of the creation of the world or the beginning of the world, the origin of the world, and is writing a response with beauty and truth. He's not just writing and saying those are wrong. He is retelling this in a poetic sort of way. And it still, I think, offers important counterpoints, if you will, to popular views of our own identity and our own beginning to this day. In other words, it's shedding light to darkness. According to Genesis chapter 1, men and women then not only have the same nature made in the image of God, but they, that ultimately we cannot fully embrace this nature without each other. One of the most misguided understandings of the image of God is that you can demonstrate the image of God by yourself fully. You can't. We, we have to do this together. What does it say? In the image of God, he created them them. There's a fullness of what it means to be human that cannot be mirrored. It cannot be reflected in isolation. This doesn't take away from individual identity. I think it demonstrates how profoundly bigger it is than we often imagine. See, not only so, but we also, as human beings, have the same calling. We're all meant to have dominion. That's what I mean by a picture there of order and of harmony. There is cooperation, there's connection, there's unity, not only in how and who they were made to be, but how they are meant to function and even commingle together as curators of creation. And as we mentioned last week, theologian Marvadon identifies two kinds of sexuality uh, from the creation narrative in her book, Sexual Character, which I only found out this week was building on the insights of another theologian uh, named Joyce uh, Hugert. And in Genesis chapter 1, Dawn sees what she calls social sexuality. Here's what she says. Our social sexuality is composed of all aspects of our being that are distinct from, from specific feelings, attitudes, and behavior related to or leading to genital union. So, in our day, this is really hard to understand, because in our day, we have almost zero comprehension of social sexuality. We don't have a category for it, and so I think this is why this language is so helpful. It's so very little than healthy expression of male-female relationships without being drawn towards sex, or, or even relationships between men and men and women and women that function in a way, in a platonic, beautiful, and loving kind of way that, I don't know, we might just call friendship. Have you noticed how hard it is to just be friends with people? Friendship is not a high school problem. Friendship is a human problem. In fact, uh, Plato, who was Socrates' student, right, uh, writes about all of the, the ways in which that Plato spoke about the moral life. He gives two chapters in one of his primary treatises of the moral life to friendship. There's no other topic he contributed two chapters to in this book. It's to friendship. There's something of what it means to be us that only functions and flourishes in friendship. See, I think this is why, because this is so Uh, vacant from our conception of who we are. I think this is why many women often feel like they have to be less feminine around men. 
so they don't give off the wrong idea, the wrong impression. Many men see themselves as only a man when they are physically attractive or seen as physically desirable. In other words, we've learned to do something that the darkness taught us, to detach our bodies from our souls. This is how we see ourselves and see each other and think this is how we're meant to function together. But when the writer of Genesis first records the creation story, we're given this vision of society, of human community, in which we're fully male and fully female and do life together as men and as women. We have dominion together as men and as women. We image God's nature and character together as men and as women. There is an obvious biological element to our nature, but there is also a deeply spiritual element to our nature. Something that draws us together, which is beyond and doesn't necessarily result in sex. That's social sexuality. It is learning to be fully a man and fully a woman in community together and not having to bifurcate yourself in order to not lead to sex or in fact to see each other that way. To see each other in healthy same-sex and opposite-sex friendships. Can you even imagine if this church got good at friendship? Where we weren't suspicious of one another? If body and soul were in harmony? See, I think we gain a deeper understanding of what we're talking about when we look at this other aspect, the second account of creation. This begins to jump off the page. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 and 25. So Adam... The first man is created first, we're told, and not a suitable helper was found for him. We will take another time to explore that word because you talk about a word that has been taken out of context and misused and manipulated. So file save for those of you who grew up when you had to do that. Um, We'll talk about that later. Things didn't used to auto save, just so you know. We'll talk about that word helper later. Uh, Adam goes to sleep. God takes a rib out of Adam. He creates woman, and then he wakes him up, and there is incredible joy and life. And here's how Adam responds, how it's recorded in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, the writer says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Genesis continues to shed light, doesn't it? Did you notice? A man and a woman completely naked, fully exposed, and there is zero shame. There is zero shame. Honestly, I can't even conceive of an existence, of an experience without shame, without fear, without being and having feelings of this is bad, this is wrong, and having a concept. Adam and Eve had never had sex manipulated, misused, misrepresented to them. They only knew it as their father, their heavenly father taught them. No shame. That's a picture of order, isn't it? Of harmony. But it's of a different order and a different harmony than the first creation account. So in Genesis chapter 2, Dawn observes the second aspect of our sexuality, which she calls genital sexuality. She says, God has designed sexual intercourse as a special sign of a unique relationship, one that develops out of leaving former family bonds and cleaving to one and only one person for the rest of your life. So social sexuality is a picture of how men and women share oneness with other people. Genital sexuality is, it shows us intimacy and oneness with one other person. 
In every aspect, then, we cherish something fundamental of our personhood, of the way that body and soul are meant to belong together. This is why Adam says, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone, but it's more than flesh. The Apostle Paul would later latch on to this exact passage in Genesis in his retelling of the gospel of this leaving and cleaving idea, and he tells the church in Ephesus, this mystery of sex, of genital sexuality, is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ in the church. So genital sexuality, like social sexuality, has this physical and spiritual element to it. It's body and soul. So in summary, social sexuality is designed, uh, this designed longing to see, to know, and enjoy each other as whole human beings. It's friendship that is both true and beautiful. Genital sexuality is designed union to express the mystery of the gospel. It's marriage that's both true and beautiful. So the order we're invited to embrace in in the scriptures is a sexuality, then here's the big picture, which body and soul are one. They're not pulled apart. Our physical flesh then filled with this spiritual meaning and spiritual life. So this is the order. And, And as we follow that pathway, we hit another signpost. Because we have to admit and we have to understand, why is it and how is it that we've lost grip of that? How is it that many of us are today years old when we're finally contending with how broken our sexuality and even our self-concept is around this? So what do we need to understand about the disorder? What is the disorder? Well, our bodies and souls not being one. When our body and soul is disjointed, that's where the disorder is. Is created. And the reasons, the reason our body and souls are disjointed and lack harmony is because of sin. Paul told the church in Galatia, he said, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You ever experience that where there's this spiritual longing to do something and your body's like, nah, that doesn't feel like a good idea? That doesn't feel like a good idea. Or your body's like, here's a really good idea. And your, your spirit is like, but that's probably really not a good idea. There's this war that's going on. Paul elaborates on it a ton in Romans chapter 7, where there's this fracture of sin that runs right through our bodies and our souls. There's a disjointedness within them. The flesh is against the spirit. The spirit is against the flesh. There is disorder. There is disharmony. And we see this tragically unfold in the creation narrative as it continues. So, like Paul in Romans chapter 13, our parents were instructed by God to have some self-control. Here is the beauty of the garden. Here is all the things that the Lord has created of beauty and abundance, this wonderful world. But there was one tree of which they needed to abstain. One, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis chapter 2 verse 17. But if you know the story, they definitely ate of that one fruit, right? Of that one tree that they were not supposed to eat of. And so in doing so, what are they doing? They're rejecting God's world that is both true and beautiful, where where body and soul live in harmony and order. They're rejecting his vision of the world and the life that he has given. And that's where the consequences of this world and the flesh begin to unfold. That's where there's this separation that breaks down. Watch this unfold. If you're still in Genesis chapter 1 or 2, move on to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 verse 7 through 8. So after they sin. Verse 7, then their eyes were both opened, and they knew that they were naked. 
And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Notice, their eyes were open, which is odd, because usually that means you see more, right? But actually, ironically, paradoxically, as their eyes are opened, they see less. What did they see? Only flesh. Only bodies. Isn't it so odd? They ate from a tree, and the first thing they notice is, we're naked. That has nothing to do with eating fruit. It has nothing to do with disobeying God about which tree they're supposed to eat from. But there was something of the world that just got fractured in that second. Are you with me? That's a very odd thing to say after you eat some fruit. We're naked. What's more? They weren't just naked. They didn't just see themselves no longer as the image of God and bearers of the divine image and the, his reflection of body and soul. They not only saw their nakedness, but what's, what's more, they were ashamed of it. They didn't just see it, but they were ashamed of it. This is what happens when your soul is ripped away from your body and your self-concept. There is shame. So they not only hid themselves with fig leaves, but they got behind the trees of the garden. Body and souls are disjointed, and now everything becomes disjointed. Commenting on this particular moment in the creation story, Pastor Rich Viotis explains in his book, The Deeply Formed Life, that the way sin opens humanity's eyes paradoxically cuts off the deeper vision by which we are to see each other. We now live ashamed by our exposure, self-conscious of our vulnerability, and needing to protect ourselves from being laid bare. See, because of sin, we have a tendency of only seeing bodies. Because of sin, we only consider flesh. We're prone to even limit our sexuality and the sexuality of others to genital expression. That's disordered. That's disordered. That's not the way it's meant to be, the way it's always been. That's pornography. That's enjoying someone's body without even considering their soul. That's even masturbation, bodily pleasure, and fantasy without even the need of another whole person in the room. That's advertisement that only shows skin. That's social media when we doom scroll and we're only looking at flesh. We separate the soul and the body. We do this so often, we're often not even aware that we're doing it. We have learned to just look at the body and only consider the body. Not, not just some of us, all of us have learned to do this. This is a human condition. This is part of the fall. Perhaps those are a little bit obvious. But we're prone to neglect the soul and only see the body in some really subtle ways, even in our community. So let's bring this home a little bit. See, men often struggle in relationship with other men. Women often struggle in their intimacy with other women. Healthy platonic friendships with the opposite sex almost seem impossible and instead, what we've been taught is to compare and to fear. To compare what you see, to compare with what you know to be true about yourself, to fear each other's bodies and even be blind to the soul. Even in the church, where we're supposed to be spiritual people, right? We still fail to see each other according to the spirit. We see one another only according to the flesh. That's disordered. Instead of seeing a sister in Christ, we see a threat to our own marriage. Instead of seeing a brother in Christ, we see a potential mate only. Instead of seeing a wife as the picture of Christ's church, a husband sees a means for sexual gratification. 
Instead of a husband, a picture of Christ's love, a wife sees a pathway perhaps to to children, detaching body from soul. This is what the darkness does. This is what sin does. It separates the body from the soul. It separates what God created for union. And what's ironic about it is we almost always say something like this at a wedding. Let no one pull apart what God has what? Brought together. And yet that's what we constantly are doing as it relates to our sexuality. Constantly pulling apart what God has brought together. Now, there are boundaries in relationships. This is very true. My concern is, is that most of our boundaries are set out of fear and comparison and jealousy and darkness and not by the truth and beauty of who God is. In other words, we set, we set, we set boundaries because of shame and not because of love. Boundaries are good when they come from love. When they come from shame, they're just as hurtful as breaking them. See, back in Romans, I think that's what Paul is writing about. With a full view of creation's order and sin's disorder, he tells his readers that our relationship with sex needs healing. It needs change. It needs renewal. And so he says in Romans 13, verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Paul lists all of these different things, and all of them are disordered, and all of them are a pulling apart. Drunkenness separates us from our better judgment. Anger separates us from each other. And sexual immorality separates body and souls. This is the small list, and Paul has very long lists elsewhere, but he is always including what he calls works of the flesh or what is earthly, works of darkness. Sexual sins are always a part of those lists. And they're always described by what is physical, visible, immediate. So then what we understand is that sexual immorality in general is sexual character and understanding which is void of spiritual meaning. It is taking out all of the spirit and all of the soul from our under. It's just bodies. Sensuality is sexual experience, and without grounding, the grounding of a soul, it's just desired. The disorder is body and soul disjointed. And so this is an important moment for us. How are the ways you've seen yourself, your own body, your own story, your own sexuality? And as I've been reminded much recently, sexuality is not something you've been given, not even as Christians, only when you're married. You have a sexuality from the moment you were knit together in your mother's womb. It is a part of your identity. It's a part of who you are, single, divorced, married, married with kids, married happily, married struggling. We all have a sexuality that is meant to express the truth and beauty of who God is. The evil one would love for us to neglect that. He would love for us to just be a bunch of bodies who gather here every day. And sometimes I know it feels like that. It's just some bodies. And after COVID, that was kind of like very spiritual, right? To just be around some bodies for a minute. But the pathway to healing, I think, is more than that. And it's a lot longer than that. Don't you wish that healing was an instantaneous thing and that you didn't have to worry about it anymore? But, but it really is this long road, especially with our sexual identity that we need to take. So that's the third sign pro, signpost. We've looked at the order. We've looked at the disorder. Now what does it mean to walk in healing? Healing from sexual identity, disunity, takes time. And I think one of the reasons, I know I found this in my own story, I, have, I don't even have language sometimes to identify how I've been wounded. I, I don't even have language sometimes to identify the ways I even need healing in my sexuality, in my understanding of sex, whether it be social sexuality or genital sexuality. 
Because sexual sin and shame and the spiritual malpractice around sexuality have shaped us in ways we likely have not even comprehended. Perhaps simply even the fact that many of us have been to church for a long time, and this might be one of the first time we've ever sat and considered our sexuality from the Scriptures. That is what we call biblical malpractice, because the Scriptures constantly are speaking about our sexuality. And so to take that out is just as lethal as taking out anything else that the Lord speaks about. See, the beauty and power of John's invitation to not simply step into the light, but to walk in it, that's what takes time. But there's this irony in the Christian story. There's healing that happens immediately, but there's also healing that takes a very long time. See, there's healing that happens right by the power and love of Jesus, right when you step into the light. You are a new creation, the Scriptures say. The old is gone, the new has come. But in another very real sense, we have only just begun to heal when we come to Jesus, when we learn the will and the way of another and submitting to King Jesus in all of the different ways that we need to in our life. So in a very real sense, your body and soul, when you came to Christ, were brought back together. But in another sense, it takes a lifelong pursuit of learning how the harmony has been restored. Or as my professor, William Klein, has written, he says it takes a long time to become who you are. It takes a long time to become who you are. It takes time to name sexual wounds, whether we have caused them or endured them. And I think that's what Adam and Eve experience next. They experience this long, very challenging experience of naming sin, of identifying and being clear with the brokenness. See, they hid, but God drew near. Isn't that beautiful? God drew near to Adam and Eve, and he asks them, where are you? He invites them out of the darkness, out of the mere existence in a physical world and mindset, out of the pure fleshly vision that sin had introduced to them back into his world of light. He says, where are you? come here. They step into the light. But then, let's listen a little bit as the disjointedness sort of is progressively exposed, even though they're now in the light. Genesis chapter 3, verse 10. Adam responded to God's question of, where are you? I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Don't you love that? Right away, God addresses it. That's a problem. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said what? The woman whom you gave to me. She, made, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Some things never change. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said what? The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So they said, we're naked. We only see our bodies. We only see flesh. And God said essentially, who taught you to see like that? Who taught you that's who you are? Who taught you to understand my good and truth and beauty and my spirit-filled world? Who taught you to look at it like that? Are you picking up what God is throwing down here? Who taught you to see like that? I didn't teach you that. That's not how I made you. And then comes the blame. The man blames the woman. The woman blames the serpent. Think about this. The two human beings who had never been at odds with each other, ever, all they knew was harmony. All they knew was unity. They never had any arguments. They went on road trips together in the garden, and they never complained about directions. Like that kind of miraculous beauty, right? It's amazing. Never argued about the laundry because there wasn't any. It was beautiful. In that moment, 
the two human beings who had always been one, united socially and genitally, are now at odds with each other. Do you see the fracture? It's not only we're naked, but now we're opposed. They're in disharmony. So what's happening? See, stepping into the light is about confession. It's about confession. Not necessarily my sin, but confessing truth. Here is what is true. That's stepping into the light. Walking in the light is about restoration. It's about restoration. It's about learning this new way. It's about embodying this new reality. I think what it requires then is lament. Lament is one of the first steps in the long road of walking in the light. We don't only confess the truth, but we lament what may ultimately seems a bit counterintuitive to healing. It feels like it makes the problem worse, right? But lament is necessary for healing. Professor Sung Chan Ra says that shalom or peace, wholeness, requires lament. He goes on to say in his book, Prophetic Lament, that avoiding lament causes us to forget. We don't forget the pain. We don't forget the sin. We don't forget the suffering. We forget who God is. We forget who we are. We begin to take on the shame and the pain ourselves. We don't name it, but we still wear it. The name of a fantastic book is simply The Body Keeps the Score. In other words, there's something about your biology, there's something about who you've been created to be that you cannot wash away your own pain. It begins to show up in physical and visible expressions because your body and soul are meant to be together. We forget who we are. You see, many of us remain unhealed from sexual wounds because we haven't lamented them yet. We haven't named them. We haven't pushed them into light. And church, that's okay. Some of us aren't ready for that. Some of us still need time because it was the church who hurt us. And so the last thing we're ready to do is to step back into a spiritual community and say, here's all of the pain that I've endured. So we must be a people who learn to always say, here's where the light is. Step into it, come, confess. But to have this strange paradoxical tension go, you may not be ready for it yet, and that's okay. You belong still. You belong even before you're ready to fully step into that. That's a really hard space to be. It's okay. It takes time. Last week, I brought up stuff that, was, that happened to me in the fifth grade. I didn't know I was going to talk about that last week. It takes time. I'm 40, and I'm still learning how 10-year-old Jason was hurt in a sex ed class that I didn't even know was on the schedule. It's okay. You can be gentle with yourself. We ought to be gentle with each other because the Lord is graciously healing us, and that takes time. That's lament. Lament steps into the light and doesn't offer solutions. It often just gives space. Can I just holler at our groups for a second? Sometimes y'all need to be quiet. So do I. I'm so prone when someone says something, go, all right, here's the three sermons you need to listen to. I'll give you one Keller, two Chandlers, and you download this Bible on audio, and then you'll be healed, right? Those are pastors that we treat their sermons like commodities is what, anyway. I, we're so prone to want to give answers and, to, and simply say what my wife is teaching me a lot is to just say, I'm sorry. 
that's hard. You're welcome here. That took a lot of courage. I'm so honored that you shared that. I'm so sorry. Can you imagine if the church's first response when people shared pain was not a solution, but lament? And you might think, well, we're supposed to tell them about gospel. You know know what Jesus did? (laughs) He wept with those who wept. He came to Lazarus' tomb, the guy who was going to resurrect from the dead. And he cried at Lazarus' tomb, knowing full well he was about to bring him back to life. Why? Because Jesus knew how to lament. He knew how to enter into the suffering of pain and of healing. And, oh, God, would you make that true in us? See, when we name the disorder, then healing is possible. It may take 30 years, but when we name the pain, healing is possible. We not only step into the light, but we bring that into the light and we learn to walk into the light. That's what God does with Adam and Eve. He names their sin. It might feel like judgment in Genesis chapter 3, but it's the most gracious thing God could do is to get real clear, here's the sin, here's the cost, here's the consequence. And he lays all of that out. He clarifies to them where the darkness had deceived them and introduced disorder. But he leads them down this path. He helps them to not just step into the light, but walk into the light. Why? Not to condemn them, but to heal them. After he names sin and consequence, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, it says, God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. Once he named their spiritual disorder, he clothed them with grace and love. Why is this loving? Well, God made a sacrifice. He didn't have animal skins just lying around in the garden. He made a sacrifice, and he took that skin, and he covered them. The penalty for eating of that tree, as he was clear about, that sin was death. But instead of their life, God took the life of an animal and he cleanses them then with his grace and with his love. That animal was not powerful, that God was who brought a substitutionary sacrifice. And so from the very beginning, God has shown how he intends to rejoin your body with your soul, a substitutionary sacrifice. The animal in the garden is a signpost for us too then. It prepares us for the anointed one for the lion and the lamb of which we've just sung, the one who would die in your place and for your sins. Therefore, Paul could say this in Romans 13, verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desire. He's talking about putting on grace, putting on love, putting on the substitutionary atonement, putting on righteousness, putting on forgiveness, putting on the power and the mercy and the cleansing and the holiness of Jesus Christ, who meets us in the light. See, when we put on Christ, we walk in the Spirit. Our disordered way of seeing ourselves and seeing each other is healed, and it progressively continues to heal. Because when we put on Christ, we don't just think and see in the flesh anymore. We seek to satisfy not just bodily desires. We think with the mind of Christ. We satisfy spiritual longings. We live as body and soul. See, the way God sees us is whole. The way that God has made us is whole. That's who you are. That's who you were from the beginning. A whole person made in the image of God, male and female, together. Walking in the light, then, is about this renewal. It's about this restoration. It's about following these signposts all the way to our healing. And we might need to start over again, right? It's not just 
order, disorder, healing. Sometimes you're in that healing. You go, What's the disorder again? What's the order look like again? And it's this wonderful rhythm, if you will, of healing that we get to have as a spiritual community. It's not always linear or progressive. It's sometimes we go backwards to go forwards in the spiritual journey. It's what makes us long, I think, for the return of Christ when one day we don't have to journey anymore. One day we don't have to heal anymore because we will be full and forever healed and whole. See, when Jesus comes back, remember that's the context of Romans 13, he'll set all things to rights. He'll bring healing. He'll bring restoration. The fullness of his truth rejoined fully with beauty. He'll bring together what sin has tragically separated. And between now and then, we get to step into this light, to walk in this light. We're meant to begin and participate that work of renewal. We've got to do that personally, but you can't do that by yourself. We need each other. We need to be a community. We've got to walk in the light together, a pathway of healing together as men and as women who image their creator. So let's ask for his help. Heavenly Father, thank you that your word clarifies for us not simply where we as a people, as a creation, have erred, not just the disorder, but the order. That order brings clarity to us of why you've made us the way you've made us, why you've called us the way you've called us. And so that order, that light, sheds truth all over our bodies and souls. And so right now, I lift up my brothers and sisters, myself included, Father. We have looked at ourselves, our bodies and souls, in disordered ways. We have been taught to look at our bodies and the bodies of others in disordered ways. Forgive us and heal us. Father, we have been sinned against and only been viewed as a body. Would you wash away our shame? Father, we have hurt and harmed others by only seeing ourselves or each other as a body detached from a soul. Father, correct us, transform us. All of us struggle to know what healthy relationships look like. Men with men, women with women, men and women together. Father, would you wake us up? Would you open our eyes? Sin opened our eyes to see the world in a particular way, and your resurrection life helps us to see truth again. And Father, help us to know what this looks like to sort of set a pace for a long haul. Forgive me for often wanting quick, quick fixes that move from week to week as opposed to being willing to lament and to wait on you who give us strength, who give us help, who meet us, sometimes just with tears. You're a really good and loving father. So help us to be a children who know just that, above anything and everything else that we have loved, that we have been loved and that we are loved. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and sing with us?